The Onyx One Month DAP program evaluated Resolute Onyx DES in about 1,700 complex high bleed and risk patients with one month DAP. Visit Medtronic.com backslash Onyx One program to see the data. Resolute Onyx DES is not currently indicated for high bleed and risk patients on one month DAP in the United States. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello, and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for January 2021. I'm your host, Shelley Wood, the managing editor at TCTMD. Yes, it's the middle of winter, at least in my hemisphere. And yes, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. And yes, pretty much everyone who might be listening to this podcast is either dealing with the hellishness of an overwhelmed hospital or trying to figure out how to cover overhead costs while their patients stay home, downplaying their symptoms. Okay, that's some sweeping generalizations to kick things off. But looking on the bright side, many of you have had your vaccinations, much deserved, I'm thrilled for you. In other happy news, we announced this month that Mamas Mamas is our new senior clinical editor at TCTMD. Mamas is the clinical director for the Center for Prognosis Research and a professor of interventional cardiology at Keele University, as well as an honorary consultant cardiologist at Royal Stoke Hospital in Stoke-on-Trent, England. Mamas is my guest today on the Heart Sounds podcast. Hi, Mamas. Thank you for joining me for this. I thought we'd start, for those who don't know you, can you just tell my audience a little bit about yourself, where you're based and what you do on a day-to-day basis? So my name's Mamas Mamas. I am a clinical cardiologist based at Keele University in the United Kingdom. I'm an interventionalist and I'm an academic, so my uh, big data um, focus is around using patients' electronic healthcare records and trying to get information from these records in how we can improve care. I thought maybe we could, I always hope that people listen back to old podcasts, maybe they don't do that, but to situate this in time and place, can we talk a little bit what's happening with the COVID-19 pandemic? This is, as far as I understand it, we're calling this the third wave in the UK now. It's the second wave where I am here in Canada, but what are things like in your hospital and, and how is it affecting your practice? So it's really hectic. Um, as you know, there is a new UK variant, the B11 variant. Um, and this variant seems to be a lot more infectious. So estimates between 30 and 70% more infectious than the regular COVID that we know. And today there's some data out that suggests that the odds of mortality when infected with this uh, new variant are 30% greater than compared to the other variant. And it's quite interesting in that um, the first or second lockdown was around September, and we started to see a decrease in cases around October, November time um, following the lockdown. And then suddenly there was a big upspike in cases, um, which was exactly the sort of time frame that this new variant was described in the United Kingdom. So things are getting really hectic in the sense that we're seeing a lot younger patients being admitted. Um, We're seeing patients that are much sicker than the first wave, where it was predominantly much more elderly and comorbid patients. And we're really having an impact um, on our healthcare services in that our hospitals are much fuller now than they were, say, you know, in March, April, which was the peak of the first wave, we're seeing many more patients being ventilated. 
And I guess the biggest concern to many of us in the cardiovascular community in the United Kingdom is actually the impact on elective cardiac services. Because again, you know, all elective services have stopped in the UK for cardiac care. And we're going to see a real big problem, um, you know, later on in the year of um, patients with increased morbidity and mortality, particularly around time-sensitive uh, cardiovascular conditions. Right. I've heard this from lots of people that it's not just the, the missing acute cases that will lead to more severe disease down the road, but also these elective procedures that kept on getting postponed and postponed. And that does sound so devastating. And, and because I'm in Western Canada, I feel like I'm just watching things so closely and worrying and wondering when it might come my way. But I'm not on the front lines. I'm not a physician. So I'm certainly watching with real heartache and, and hope that things can turn around. I do remember you telling me that you got your at least your first vaccine. Have you had your second? No. Um, so we in the United Kingdom, we've adopted a single vaccine approach. Um, and the idea behind that is that we can vaccinate a greater proportion of the population with the hope that that will reduce the impact of COVID, particularly on the healthcare system. So in the United Kingdom, we're taking the approach of first vaccine followed by the second vaccine within 12 weeks. And that initially sounded you know, sensible. Many people spoke about it. I guess the main concerns are that we don't know what the efficacy of the first vaccine is. And certainly data coming out from Israel would suggest that in their population, the efficacy is probably worse than what was suggested from the randomized control trials, which would be expected because I guess the population that's being treated in the real world are probably a lot more comorbid and elderly than we um, see in the randomized trial. And secondly, you know, we have this new variant in the UK. There's some data that suggests that the vaccine will be effective against the new variant. But again, you know, we don't really have much data in terms of how effective and you've, you've got to get people out there. You've got to get the vaccine into people for it to have a, its a impact. Yes. I mean, yes. I mean, that's that. So the logistical challenge has been interesting. Um, initially, it was mainly a number of hospitals that were chosen as vaccine hubs. But I think the government very rapidly realized that using just a few hospitals as hubs and trying to deliver a vaccine from there is just not going to cut it for the sorts of numbers that are needed to be able to relax lockdowns. And so they've taken much more innovative approaches. So for example, you know, we're making better use of our pharmacies. Um, we're using primary care. And also at the community setting, we're using mosques. We're using nightclubs to deliver these vaccines in the hope that we can perhaps reach certain demographics that perhaps wouldn't be as efficacy reached um, using, you know, the general hospital hubs or primary care. And that sort of, in a way, reminds me of, you know, the hypertension study in the barber shop that was presented, I think, a yeah. year or so ago, showing that, you know, where you deliver care really can impact on the communities that receive care. Totally. The amount of trust that the community has and the convenience of it, I would think. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I love that you've uh, mentioned something creative and kind of optimistic because it is easy to get bogged down in, in some of the, the sad scenarios that we just hear about everywhere. And I think what I'll do is I'll segue from here because usually I use the first podcast of the year or even more often I use the video program 
um, on record, but I think everyone's tired of watching videos via Zoom, so we'll do it <laughs> in the podcast instead, and hopefully people want to listen. But I do want to talk about what the future looks like, at least for 2021. Looking ahead, cardiologists are still fighting COVID-19 as a very real foe in day-to-day practice, but any predictions for what we might see? Uh, we've touched on sort of late presentations and delayed elective procedures, but other things you're expecting to see this year in, in cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular disease care? Yes, I think first and foremost, I'm positive. Um, I think that the COVID pandemic has really changed how we think about delivery of cardiovascular care. And so I think we're using a lot more virtual resource than what we have done in the past. I mean, if you asked me a year ago, would I run virtual clinics? I would have probably laughed. Um, And now this is the standard. And I think, you know, going forward, it's really changing how we're delivering care in the sense that you know often trying to get very comorbid elderly patients to our clinic is logistically very challenging whereas with a virtual system with a telephone clinic then that's much more satisfactory for the patients um and certainly for you presumably it's also got to be useful in terms of you being able to have the satisfaction of reaching those patients yes Exactly. Um, because often, you know, you, you weren't able because transport didn't come to bring the patient. And so it'd be frustrating. Whereas now, I think there's a lot more flexibility in being able to reach these patients. I think the other area that I think is positive in that we're really thinking about a more holistic impact of what we do and the services that we deliver. As an interventional cardiologist in the past, perhaps I would just think about, you know, what stent I was going to use, which coronary artery I was going to use, and perhaps didn't think about sort of the impact on the the wider primary care population of what we treat, the sorts of treatments. If we don't deliver the treatments, what will happen? Um, If we don't deliver investigations that are invasive, can we deliver them non-invasively? So it's really making us think about resource utilization and how we structure our services and i think that's very positive as well another area which i think is very exciting and it's an area that we're involved with is you know as as we've discussed a bit earlier we know that reduction in elective services will impact on you know procedures and so we've calculated for example we have a paper in um resubmission circulation interventions that's in the united kingdom there are close to five thousand less procedures for aortic stenosis compared to what there should be and again with left main stem disease close to one and a half thousand less procedures what we're doing is now working with mathematicians to develop mathematical models that can be used at an individual hospital level to try to make sense of their waiting list and try to think about how to structure their service delivery so that the procedures that are most time sensitive get done first and take into account the individual resources at each hospital. I think, you know, developing these sorts of relationships with mathematicians and thinking about how we develop care will very much make you know, the delivery of healthcare much more logical than the haphazard approach that's historically been undertaken, where often it's those with the loudest voices that get their procedures through the doors first. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and we're seeing that in so many other aspects of our lives. I think as maybe the last thing I'd like to ask you is, do you think people are consuming news differently because of COVID-19? 
I feel like, or I worry that I'm not reading things in the same depth that I used to. So what I thought I'd put to you is, should we be doing something differently with TCTMD in order to make sure people are reading to the bottom of our stories or, or digesting all the nuance? How, how is this whole year that we've been through and looking forward to 2021, how has news changed and our consumption of it? I think what this last year has shown is that news has to be delivered rapidly and has to be accessible. And I think social media has been a very powerful arena for dissemination of news, particularly during the early start of the pandemic when, you know, as clinicians, we didn't really understand how to treat the virus, how to structure our healthcare. And often we look towards data coming out from China, from Italy to you know, have an idea of what to do. And a lot of that information was through social media. I think in terms of you know, what, what we can perhaps think about at TCTMD is multimedia. I think multimedia is very much the way forwards. And so we have a whole generation of physicians now that rely on multimedia content. So I think um, presenting new stories in the written form, I think, allows you for a certain depth. But as physicians, we're also interested in understanding the context of this information, how it will impact on our practice. And really, that's sometimes quite difficult to get through the written medium. And so using multimedia, so for example, videos, panel discussions, I think will be very important. But also thinking about the types of voices that we attract um, and making those voices diverse. And by diverse, I both mean in terms of background, but also the healthcare systems that they're derived from. I think that will be very important. And I guess, you know, finally, a new story is good if there's the ability to have feedback and rapid feedback in that, you know, to, to somehow capture the discussion. And I think there are innovative ways to be able to capture the discussion around news stories that perhaps we're not utilizing. You're touching on so many things that I think about all the time and, and certainly I always want to be first with a news story but I also want to be accurate and I also want to be in depth and I also want to get a range of voices so these are the things I'm always encouraging the team to think about that it is very hard to do it all instantly and, and I think you're right that um, having different ways of approaching the same topic is really critical so I'm not sure that that's new for 2021 but it's certainly an ongoing process and I know I'm not the only editor struggling with some of those decisions but it gives us lots to think about and lots to work on together. So thank you so much for telling me about it and uh, letting us know a little bit more about yourself as well. Look forward to working with you over the next few years. And yeah, I'm very excited. I think it's a great team um, that we have on TCTMD. And I think that, you know, the, the delivery of what's relevant to physicians is really, really important. And I think you guys have done an absolutely sterling job in sort of thinking about what's important, but also how it can impact on our practice, and then taking it further by getting a diverse group of voices to you know, discuss the news. And after all, you know, in my view, news is a two-way process. I wasn't uh, looking for compliments, but it's a nice note to end on. So thank you so much for that. Thanks again. So thank you, Shelley. Always a pleasure. That's it for Heart Sounds this month. 
Some of the COVID-19 developments I spoke about with Mamas are things we covered on TCTMD in the past few weeks. I hope you're still checking out our COVID-19 dispatch every weekday for regular research and policy updates. In other highlights of the past month, we covered news that the ACC Political Action Committee is pausing political donations in the wake of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol building. We covered the CMS final decision memo extending Medicare coverage of the MitraClip and any up-and-coming edge-to-edge repair procedures to patients with functional mitral regurgitation. I myself worked for much of the month on a feature story looking at the exodus of nurses and techs from full-time positions to traveler roles in other parts of the country where they can make two to three times the money, leaving cath labs and other hospital departments scrambling for staff as elective procedures ramp up again. Find all that and more on tctmd.com. Thanks for listening and hope to see you back here next month. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD featuring Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson and Rocks Art Radio with Dr. Roxanne Moran. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.